our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make a few comments this morning about the occasion of this service, the occasion of the giving and receiving of vows of David Weir and Barbara Boltz. Um, about 22, 24 years ago, my father wrote an article about the decline of marriage. And I think that uh, whatever he saw about that coming decline in the United States, we live in the midst of it. A marriage as an institution is, has suffered great attacks and is becoming almost inconsequential. And I'll say more about that in a few minutes. My father made a proposal that he thought at the time was radical, namely that um, we relegate all civil ceremonies where there was not a promise of lifelong fidelity to uh, the civil courts, to any place other than the church, but that we bring back into the church those who were committed to having marriages, which would be lifelong and which would be uh, lived in the example of and be a, an ex- a, a testimony to our faith in the marriage of Christ and his church. Well, a number of years later, after mentioning this, um, a couple in one of my churches did in fact take that step of uh, being married, not just in the church, but in worship service on Sunday morning. And it was a great joy to all of us who were present. And David and Barbara have also chosen to have this be the time when they give and receive their vows to one another. Now, some of you might think, well, this is unique. This is extraordinary. Uh, Some of you might be like my mother who, when I talked to her about a wedding ceremony being a worship service, she didn't quite come out and say it, but she sort of said, well, a wedding ceremony is more a private party. And uh, I think that's the way all of us tend to think about marriage ceremonies. But if you go back to the time of the Reformation, what you'll find is that during the Reformation, John Calvin, John Knox, and in fact the first Scottish book of worship all placed the wedding ceremony in Sunday morning worship, and specifically they placed it right prior to the sermon. And you can actually go back and read in the books of worship uh, the actual text of sermons that, for instance, Calvin and the other people in Geneva and Switzerland would give at wedding ceremonies. And they're real boring. And... In large part, what I say this morning will be exactly what pastors have been saying century after century. So if this morning you think this is weird, remember that you're weird. And you're weird because you live in the late 20th century when uh, buildings out in California that were built in 1945 can be on the National Register of Historic Places. (laughs) Okay? So you get the idea. So what you're really doing is becoming normal in the history of the church. So settle in and it'll be a good ride. Now, let's hear what God has to say to us this morning. But I want to set set the environment, set the scene. Today, there are many, many attacks upon God's truth. We're surrounded by them. And the only way to avoid the attacks upon God's truth is to live in a cave. And if you live in the cave, you won't have... Uh, the ancient philosopher's shadows reminding you of the truth, even. The cave is completely dark. There is no light. It's like, uh, it's like some of the caves in this area where if you lose your flashlight, you're in trouble. And many people are in the cave in America, and there is no flashlight. And nobody's going to come and rescue them. And if I, if I could say something this morning, I would say that really this worship service 
and as we live it out in our lives, ought to be the light of the world. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Back at the time of the early church, uh, the Christians took over the Roman Empire. Now, how did they do that? Well, there were a couple of things that everybody that studies history knows that, that caused the change. So that many, many Romans, uh, including many uh, of the leaders, became Christians. And one of the ways was they went back onto the, uh, the slopes and the hillsides behind their homes and they picked up the babies that had been abandoned because parents didn't want them. And this had a powerful impact on Rome. Another thing, though, was the Romans used to say about the Christians, see how they love one another. The Christians had a, a, a tremendous impact on the Roman Empire because of their love for one another. And that sounds real cosmic. It sounds like we're going to listen to a John Lennon song, right? Except the love that they had for one another was not this sort of sentimental, sickly, sweet, cloying kind of gunk that we sing about in songs. But rather, it was the love of husbands being faithful to their wives till death. <laughs> okay? And that's not sentimental. That's work. And it was the love of wives honoring their husbands. And the Romans, the, the tired, worn-out, weary, decadent Romans, looked at Christians rescuing the babies on the slopes and loving one another. And they said, this is the true God. And so I want you to look at our world with eyes that see. I've often said that the church should not be the one place where lying is always permitted. Let's, let's acknowledge in the church the world we live in. What is the world? What is the darkness? How would we diagnose the uh, environment that we live in the midst of? And I want to spend a couple minutes diagnosing it so that you see it accurately. Okay? What is this world? Well, the world that we live in, rather than receiving the good gift from God, from God's hand, and learning the nature of this good gift of sexuality, the world is not willing to embrace this gift of sexuality, or what I refer to as the first diversity given by our Creator while we're still in our mother's womb. We all claim to love diversity. Well, this is the first one. The world does not love the diversity of sexuality that God has given and declared good. Rather than learning the nature of this diversity and coming to love it, the world claims to be a master of that diversity, a master of its own sexual identity, and no longer refers to it as sexual identity, but rather it refers to it as gender. Instead of seeing our bodies and understanding that biology is in fact destiny, we choose our gender, and our choice in the eyes of the world is legitimate at any point along the infinite continuum that this word gender represents. Made by God, male and female, we push away this kind gift and choose some point along gender's infinite continuum, even altering our choice day by day, depending upon our mood. Today I'm a man, tomorrow I'm a woman, and the following day some androgynous creature halfway in between the two, Freddie Mercury, Elton John, and all that. Let's bend it like Beckham. Sexual differentiation, and my son plays soccer. I know that that's not what it really means, but nevertheless. Sexual differentiation is old and in the way. Gender identity is so much better, allowing us all the sovereignty of personal choice, which is our national God. And so sexual identity is out, gender roles are in, and choice reigns supreme. 
We're not content to attack simply sexual differentiation, though. The evil one also attacks marital fidelity. So today we have affairs. We don't commit adultery. And we get no-fault divorces. And thus the crime of adultery is rendered victimless and judges are spared the pain and bother of making a public determination which of the spouses is the innocent party. Everything's cleaned up and only the children seem to have a problem with it. Jaded by our lusts and bondage to our licentiousness and the fact that you don't know the word is an indication that you're in bondage to it. We are quick even within the church of Jesus Christ to deny that there's any such thing as an innocent spouse. Instead, we talk with facile tongues of the brokenness of life, the inevitability of failure of every husband and wife, and the freedom we all have in Christ to start over, no longer living in bondage to the law. God's gift of sexuality is replaced with man's choice of gender identity. God's gift of lifelong monogamy or fidelity in marriage is replaced with serial adultery and no-fault divorce. And God's gift of patriarchy is replaced with abdication and rebellion. Men are eager to agree that the husband ought to be the head of the wife, or what I mean is ought not to be the head of the wife, because it leaves men free of the responsibility and burden of governing the home, and that's hard work. And women are eager to agree that the husband ought not to be the head of the wife because they are, after all, the wife. And so what have we done? Well, we've trashed the doll's house and find ourselves inconsolable over what we have lost. And the gains we thought were ours burn like fire. They consume our minds and they consume our emotions and they consume our bodies. They drive us into the eternal torment of hell. And they leave our children orphans, cast into the abortionist dumpsters or the well-intentioned but bureaucratic arms of the state, working through its child and family services division. And not surprisingly, given this context, wedding ceremonies have become ever more extravagant pointing, as they do, to ever smaller realities in time. The romantic myth dies hard, and what is lacking in the living can be compensated for in the partying. And thus we have wedding ceremonies today that on average cost around $20,000. What a party it is, but how sad is the living out of that party afterwards. The limousine comes in to pick up the bride and groom at the door of the church and take them to the hotel ballroom or country club where the reception will be held, but it arrives smelling of the debauchery of the previous night, and no one's fooled. Least of all, the chauffeur who winks at the groom as he holds the door for the bridal party. What have we done? We have the courts for the children. We have the pharmaceuticals for the STDs. We have the NIH for the next sexual plague. We have Viagra for our weariness, ever more sophisticated perversions for our jaded boredom, the privacy of DVDs, DSL, and cable modems for our shame. We have counselors for our wives. We have South College Avenue's baby-killing camp for unwanted products of conception. And the band plays on. But what have we done? In Genesis 2, we read, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. 
Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, for she was taken out of Ish, or man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, when you listen to that scripture read, that's the truth. That's the gift. That's the doll's house. And God didn't give it to us for our curse, but for our blessing. And insofar as you and I live out our lives, hearkening back and remembering and looking forward and creating and obeying and visibly demonstrating that reality that we read about in Genesis where sexuality was created, we will give glory to God and giving glory to God, we will be happy. And the degree to which we set ourselves against the living God and we say, I will not be a man or a woman. I will not be faithful. I will not be faithful toward death. And I will not be a patriarch. And I will not be ruled by my husband. We will learn the nature of the sovereignty of God. God is no man's debtor, either in his blessings or his curses. We have no new sins. We have not invented anything that ancient Greece and Rome didn't have in abundance. And God will judge civilizations and God will judge households and God will judge marriages and God will judge husbands and wives. And they will learn his nature. That to those who humble themselves and learn from him, that he is a blessing, that he is a salve for uh, tormented consciences, that he is a restorer of the years that the locusts have eaten, that he is the God of new beginnings, that he is the one who says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Now, It's often a question, and I I mention this regularly. Um, You know, should the preacher uh, act as if there's no sin present in the congregation? Should he act as if there's no sin present in his family? Should he act as if there's no sin present in himself? And intentionally being somewhat cryptic, I'm going to tell you that my wife and I this morning are visible, living 
fleshly examples to you of the fact that God is the God of new beginnings. And we would be fools to have David and Barbara here this morning exchanging their vows in the presence of the people of God if we did not believe in the God of new beginnings. Because David and Barbara come here dressed in the righteousness of Christ, not in their own. But does that mean that they are not righteous? (laughs) Absolutely not. Pristine clean, because the Bible tells us that God takes us and makes us holy as his bride, the church. And so, I want to point to you back to this account in Genesis of the creation of this beautiful thing of sexuality and marriage, lifelong monogamy, lifelong faithfulness, fidelity in marriage. And I want to point you forward to the account that we have in Ephesians of the beauty of this as it's compared to Christ and his relationship to the church, which is found in Ephesians 5. And this is the text that is almost always preached on through the ages in the church on wedding days. And I'm going to read verses 21 to 33, and I'd ask you to turn there with me, please. Because here we have the back and forth of sexuality and its purpose in marriage, but then what it points to, namely to the eternal reality of the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. And there we read in verse 21, and I'm going to stop at a couple of places and make some comments, all right? And then I'm going to draw it together, but bear with me. Have your Bibles open as we read. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew. You can pick it up. I don't know the page number, but Ephesians is almost that much to the end of the Bible. All right? Near the end, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Many people argue that uh, that's a part of the prior paragraph, ought not to be included in this paragraph. And the reason they argue that is that some people have said that the fact that this section begins with be subject to one another is an indication that all of the people in the coming passages are to be subject to each other. Husband's subject to the wife, wife's subject to the husband. Children are subject to the parents, and parents subject to the children. Amazingly, nobody's really arguing that yet. And and so people say, well, no, it's a part of the prior text. It doesn't really identify what's coming. But it does. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is, look, all of us live in relationships of authority. All right? And the basic categories of authority are children with parents, wives with husbands, and employees with employers. And so here are the three basic categories we all live in. Be subject to one another. In whatever relationship you're a subordinate, submit, because the reputation of God is at stake. So be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. All right, then we get into the specifics. We start with marriage. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And so here we have set up 
the connection between the marriage relationship of husband and wife and the marriage relationship of Christ and his church. He's the bridegroom, she's the bride. He's the bridegroom, she's the bride. And so if we believe in the church of Jesus Christ and that Christ is the head of the church and has authority over the church, then we must believe that the husband is the head of the wife and has authority over the wife as Christ has authority over the church because the New Testament, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, sets this up in parallel construction. Now, we can want to go off into uh, la-la land with texts and get English professors to justify us in doing it, although not Barbara. (laughs) Oh, no. It's not going to start this again, is it? (laughs) Um, But it just has no intellectual integrity. The text is clear. We know what it means. We know what it says. And so the question is whether we are in submission to God who wrote this word or whether God is called to be into submission to us in our tired culture and our decadence. But there's no debate over the meaning of the words. All right? So that's the first one. This Christ is subject to, is the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Then, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so here we have a wedding. We have a bride dressed in white. But you realize that all of us here who claim to be Christians and have placed our faith in Jesus Christ are dressed in white. Because white is the color of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that when we came to church this morning, we had only positive thoughts? (laughs) No. I'm very happy to say on my way here this morning that no one on the road actually irritated me. But that's unusual. (laughs) And even though we laugh, that is sin. And that's a tiny one that you're all comfortable with me mentioning. Okay. In other words, we walk into the church and we give praise to a holy God by faith, dressed in the righteousness of Christ, not thinking we can come here because we're clean, we're Christians. No, Christians are filthy. And that's why we begin worship services with prayers of confession. Because otherwise, who needs Christ? Who needs the cross? Who needs His blood? Who needs the sacrament? We don't need it. Well, in the same way, Barbara comes dressed in white and she's a living picture to us of our clothing of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All right? And her husband-to-be, not yet, all right, is to love her as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He cleansed her. All right? And so it says what? So husbands also ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Look at that intimate connection between Jesus Christ and sinners. He says we're his body, we're his bride. And he gives his own body, he gives his own blood to cleanse us and to make us presentable as his bride. And this is how this whole passage works. 
For this reason, a man, verse 31, shall leave his father and mother, and notice how we're back and forth between Christ and the church and the man and the woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. Now, do any of you know what that word mystery is in Latin? Huh? I'll tell you what it is in Greek. It's mysterium. And now you know where we get our word mystery from. All right? And you know what the word great is in Greek? It's mega. All right? Here we have, in Greek, literally, mega mystery. And in Latin, the word is sacrament. Now, if you know any church history, you know that there is a debate between Protestants and Catholics, Roman Catholics, about how many sacraments there are. And you know why Catholics argue that marriage is a sacrament is because right here the Apostle Paul uses the word sacramentum to refer to what? Well, the Roman Catholics say it's referring to the wedding, the marriage relationship of a bride and a groom. Protestants generally say, and of course referring to what Catholics believe is a joke because there are more beliefs in the Catholic Church you can shake a stick at. And however many beliefs there are in the Catholic Church, there are more in the Protestants, right? So I'm going to generalize and say Protestants generally believe that this word sacramentum or mysterium does not refer to the relationship of the husband and wife, but what? It refers to the relationship of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, with his church. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this mystery, this sacramentum is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now let me ask you this question. If the relationship of God to his people, the church is the relationship of a bridegroom to his bride. Where do we see this in Scripture? Where do we see it? And I just want to draw quickly the picture so that you enter into the, the, the metaphor of marriage. Because, of course, the relationship of Christ to the church is the archetype, not the husband and wife. Christ and the church is the model, and then we have a metaphor for that, all right, in the relationship of a husband and wife. So where do we see it? Well, do you remember back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned? Do you remember that God promised that one would come? Do you remember that he did not consume them immediately because of their sin? But do you remember he said that the head would be crushed and that the heel would be bruised? And there we have the first prophecy of the coming Messiah who would do the work of redemption of his bride. And where else do you see it? Well, you see the loving provision of God for his lover, his bride, all through the Old Testament. And we often don't think of it this way, but I want to call your attention to it. When you look at the Old Testament, what you see is the long narrative of God's loving provision for his bride. And if you look in this Old Testament, what you will see is that you have constantly this theme of Christ's love for his church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Now, the church is the people of God. That God has called out to be His own. Children that He lives in love with. Children that He dresses in His righteousness. And in the Old Testament, it was the Israelites. Before Christ, the Israelites were called out by God to follow Him. They were circumcised as a mark of the covenant, and they were to live in obedience to His commands. And as they sacrificed the lambs and as they worshipped the Lord, their attention and faith was directed towards the promised Messiah who would come and redeem them from their sins. Since Christ came and sacrificed Himself on the cross for us, all those who believe in Jesus, who are obedient to Him and live their lives in the hopes of His coming, because these are the proofs of faith, all of them are now Christians and are therefore the bride of Jesus Christ. Now how has Christ loved this bride? In the Old Covenant it started in the Garden of Eden when He promised one who would come and who would redeem them from sin and from death. God in the Garden of Eden loved His bride so much that when they rebelled against Him, He did not cast them off but promised that a way would come to redeem them. And then later when God made the promise to Abraham And Abraham went with his family down into the land of Canaan. And famine hit. God, being the providing husband to his people, sent Joseph on ahead down into Egypt to lay up a treasure so that when the time came, his family would have food from God's provision for them during the famine. They wouldn't die, but they would be able to live. And so husbands are to love their wives and provide for their food and for their home and for their warmth as an act of love that is following in the pattern of God's provision for His people. How else did God love His bride, the church? Well, in Egypt, you remember. After they were provided for by being given food, we find that the Israelites were oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians. But God did not turn a deaf ear to them. But He heard their cries that went up to heaven. And out of His tender love, He sent Moses down into Egypt to break the bonds of the oppressor and to rescue his people from the slavery they were in. He loved them and he didn't act as if he didn't hear their needs, but he heard them and he rescued them in their time of need. And finally, when their oppressor said that they could go, the Israelites went out into the wilderness where they wandered with Moses, their leader, under the direction of their bridegroom. This is, as it were, the honeymoon of the people of God with their groom. How interesting that all through the honeymoon, what did they do? Well, nothing but moaning, groaning, and complaining on and on. Where are we going to eat? I'm thirsty. Who is this Moses anyhow? But as a loving groom, God put up with it. He didn't burn them up when he had a mind to. But he dealt with them patiently. He accepted them. And he did not make his provision for them dependent on their attitudes toward him. Later, despite his tender love, Israel rejected their bridegroom. And not just by being rebellious, not just by rejecting through complaint and moaning and groaning, but this time they rejected him ultimately by committing adultery. Because Israel, we read in the Old Testament, went out on the top of every high place and sacrificed the raisin cakes. Israel even descended to the point of taking her children and offering them as burnt offerings to her pagan gods. And yet the Bible tells us that even then, God went off seeking her out as his bride. And we have a beautiful, tender story of such love in the Old Testament. It's the book of Hosea. 
where the prophet went after his bride. She had been unfaithful to him. She had committed adultery. It was so bad that she had been brought to the point where she no longer had the ability to be alluring to men. And she was stripped and placed on an auction block. She had nothing to commend her to anyone. But Hosea, as a picture of God, was told to go down and to buy her back and to bring her home to be his wife. And God said to his people through this man, Hosea, this is a picture of you and how you have treated me. You have given yourself to every pagan god there is. You have been like lusty stallions going through the hillsides, giving your love to anything that there is on the face of the earth. And now you've been reduced to being auctioned off as a slave in the presence of the people. And yet, I shall return to you. And the Bible gives us this image of Hosea going and buying his wife, Gomer, back, taking her home, covering her, cleansing her, and accepting her again as his wife. Now, would you think, would you meditate on the love of God for his bride? Our rebellion against him has not stopped his love. Our weakness has not stopped his love. Our slavery, our adultery has not stopped his love. Brothers and sisters, the entire canon of Scripture is the continuous account of God, the lover, seeking endlessly his beloved and his rebellious bride. Now, how are husbands supposed to love their wives? Think of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're told in 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Galatians 1.4, speaking of Jesus Christ, says that He gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. So you have this whole theme in the Old Testament and then you have the Son of God Himself coming here to earth, being despised and rejected of men, And when he's oppressed, he opened not his mouth. And finally, he was taken to the cross where he was crucified. And who was it that crucified him? Well, I think you will understand if I say it was his bride. And this is how David is to love Barbara. He's to give himself up for her. Now, there are two applications here. The first application is to those of you who are very aware of your sin and who see that you are the unfaithful spouse. You are the dirty one that God has sent His Son to redeem. And the application is to see that Jesus said he's a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And for you this morning, not to be wed to your husband or wife here on earth, but rather to be wed to your bridegroom, Jesus Christ. 
that if God has loved us, sinners though we are in this way, with the blood of his own son being shed to purchase our redemption, which of us wouldn't go to that God and make our peace with him? He is good. He has promised that nobody that comes to him will he cast out. There is absolutely nothing you can do to compare to this image of Gomer, who was taken in again by her husband. There is no sin that comes between us and a loving God. God is in the business of new beginnings. And the first application then is that we would live by faith and would trust that though every man is a liar, God is true. And that when he says, come to me and I will not cast you out, that we may come in confidence. The second application is David. And that is that as David this morning gives and receives vows, David has the example of Jesus Christ and his love for his wife. And David is privileged to look to that example in giving Barbara everything she needs and making sure that Barbara day by day in every way is made more and more like her Savior, Jesus Christ. And these are the only two applications. Because you're not getting married, and so this isn't primarily this morning about how you should love your wife, although you may all take note. But this is about your relationship with Jesus Christ, that you will believe that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. And for David, that as he takes his vows this morning, that he trusts that God will make him faithful to these vows and that the faithfulness will look like the faithfulness of Christ to his church. And so with that, let's do it. Would you please join me up here, the bridal party, and we will have the joy and the honor of witnessing this wedding of this man and this woman. Anybody that wants to can come up and stand as witnesses, the primary ones being the matron of honor and the, or the uh, what's he called, best man. <laughs> but come on up. Yes. Yes, I know. Come on up. It's okay. And you stand right here. And if you would come on David's right, and if you would come right here on and you kids can just hang out, okay? If you will stand right there. Now, I want to say a word about our marriage ceremony. Our marriage ceremony is taken from Thomas Cranmer's prayer book. It's the same marriage ceremony that's been used by uh, pretty much everybody for centuries. It actually goes back to the sarum rite that the Roman Catholic Church used in the 12th century. If you're interested and you want to know why the different parts are in it, send me an email or send our church office and it's on your bulletin and we'll send you an article explaining all the parts of the service. But again, it's just boringly normal. All right? And this is it. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Marriage is an honorable estate which God himself made, 
and it signifies to us the mystical union that is between Christ and his church. This holy estate Christ adorned and made beautiful with his presence and first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Marriage is also commended by Paul to be honorable among all men. The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy, for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity, and when it is God's will, for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, soberly, in the fear of God, and in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. Into this holy estate, these two persons, David Lear and Barbara Boltz, come now to be joined. If any man can show just cause why they may not lawfully be joined together, let him now speak or else hereafter forever hold his peace. I think what we need is for you young man, to hold the hand of this man over here. Come on. Hold his hand. There you go. Now we can concentrate. All right. I require and charge you both that if either one of you know any reason why your marriage goes against the laws of God, you now tell me. For you can be certain that if any persons are joined together otherwise than as God's word allows, their marriage is not lawful and they will give an account on the dreadful day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts will be revealed. David, I think maybe he better go down. I should have preached on the next section of that text in, in Ephesians 5. <laughs> if you don't know what it is, open up and read. <laughs> okay, here we go. Now we get to the declaration of consent. David, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live together after God's ordinance in the holiest state of matrimony? Will you love her, comfort her, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep you only unto her so long as you both shall live. I will. Now, Barbara, will you have this man to be your wedded husband, to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you love him, comfort him, honor, and keep him in sickness and in health? And forsaking all others, keep you only unto him so long as you both shall live. I will. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Her entire family does. Okay. I want to kiss her and join their hands, please. Let us bow in prayer. Almighty and ever-blessed God, whose presence is the happiness of every condition and whose favor makes holy every relation, we ask you to be present and to look with favor upon these your servants as together they make their covenant before God. As you have brought them together by your providence, sanctify them by your spirit, giving them a new frame of heart fit for their new estate. Pour out your grace upon them so that they may enjoy the comforts, bear up under the cares, endure the trials, and perform the duties of life together under your heavenly guidance and protection. 
May they be truly joined in the honorable estate of marriage, and may they know the salvation of the only true God. We ask these things through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy, and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Would you take her bouquet, and would you take his hand, and would you two turn and face each other, please? David, would you please take her right hand and repeat after me? I, David, I, David, take you, Barbara, take you, Barbara, to be my wedded wife, be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better for worse, for better for worse, for richer for poorer, for richer for poorer, in sickness and in health, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, to love and to cherish, till death separates us, till death separates us, according to God's holy ordinance, according to God's holy ordinance, and to this I plight thee my truth. And to this I plight thee my trophy. Now drop your hands and Barbara, you take his right hand in yours. I Barbara. I Barbara. Take you, David. Take you, David. To be my wedded husband. To be my wedded husband. To have and to hold from this day forward. To have and to hold from this day forward. For better for worse. For better for worse. For richer for poorer. For richer for poorer. In sickness and in health. In sickness and in health. To love, cherish, and obey. To love, cherish, Till death separates us. Till death separates us. According to God's holy ordinance. According to God's holy ordinance. And to that I plight thee my truth. And to that I plight thee my truth. Drop your hands. David, what keepsake do you give Barbara of your promise to fulfill these vows that you have made? This ring. Okay, go ahead and give him your ring finger. Repeat after me. As a pledge. As a pledge and symbol, and symbol of the vows we have made. Of the vows we have made. With this ring I thee wed. With this ring I thee wed. In the name of the Father. In the name of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. And of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Barbara, what keepsake do you give David of your promise to fulfill these vows you have made? This ring. Give her your ring finger. <laughs> As a pledge. And symbol, and symbol of the vows we have made. Of the vows we have made. With this ring I thee wed. With this ring I thee wed. In the name of the Father. In the name of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. And of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now by the authority committed unto me as a minister of the Church of Jesus Christ, I declare that David and Barbara are now husband and wife, according to the ordinance of God. And the law of the state of Indiana, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Those whom God has joined together, let no man or woman divide. David, you may kiss your bride. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful, huh? Let us bow in prayer. 
Most merciful and gracious God, of whom all fatherhood in heaven and earth is named, bestow upon these your servants the seal of your approval and your fatherly benediction, granting unto them grace to fulfill with pure and steadfast affection the vow and covenant between them made. Guide them together, we ask thee, in the way of righteousness and peace, that loving and serving you with one heart and mind all the days of their life, they may be abundantly enriched with the tokens of your everlasting favor. O Almighty God, Creator of mankind, who only art the wellspring of life, bestow upon these your servants, if it be your will, the gift and heritage of more children, and grant that they may see their children brought up in your faith and fear to the honor and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. May God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, bless, protect, and keep you. The Lord mercifully and with his favor look upon you with all spiritual blessings and grace that you may live together in this life in such a way that you will have everlasting life in the world to come. Amen. I now have... The honor of presenting to you Mr. and Mrs. David Lear.